0: Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host for Talk of the Bay, Rick Kleffel. Today, William Gibson. He's the author of Neuromancer, the man who helped create the internet as we know it today. He's one of the originators of the cyberpunk genre of science fiction and is here to talk about his new novel, Spook Country. And he'll be taking your questions. And we have questions from over the internet. We also have with us Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland from Geek Speak, all here on Talk of the Bay. Stay tuned. Talk of the Bay is supported by Gateways Books and Gifts located at 1126 Soquel Avenue in Santa Cruz. Cynthia Koppel discusses how to lose weight, improve digestion and energy naturally with Ayurveda Wednesday, June 11th at 7 p.m. at Gateways. Details at 429-9600. The views expressed in this program are not necessarily those of KUSP. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, say hello to William Gibson. Uh, William, I'd like to talk to you first about your new book, Spook Country, one thing that I noticed about it when I was uh, revisiting it again recently was that there's a theme in this novel that I think carries through all your work in which we have um, a means, a technological means of putting something between us and the world so that there's a way of filtering our vision of the world. We saw the the spectacles um, that Molly wore in Neuromancer and we have the locative art spectacles that um, enable us to see um, art across the, around the world imposed on our natural environment. And I was thinking that, a- as it happens, for many people, Neuromancer was a form of that same kind of spectacles that really changed the way we saw the world. And I wonder if you thought of your fiction as a sort of means of imposing locative art upon those who read it.
1: Well... That's an, an interesting, excuse me, that's a little intense, that's an, that's an interesting way of looking at it, uh, but I, you know, my, um, thank you, that's much better, I'm a, definitely a native of science fiction, but I, I haven't been a, a science fiction nationalist since I was about 15 years old and I started to write to write fiction in my mid to late 20s and the fiction I wound up writing was science fiction but I was I think I was in some ways unusually self-aware I knew that I wasn't really writing about the future and I didn't actually care very much about the predictive capacity of my work. I, I had taken J.G. Ballard's dictum that from the 60s that Earth is the alien planet, quite literally, and I felt like I was using science fiction's... the toolkit that I had acquired as a kid reading science fiction, I felt that I was using using those tools in the investigation of the reality that was facing me on the day that I wrote the fiction. And in that regard, I don't think what I do has ever changed very much. I'm I'm still doing that. I've just dropped, maybe temporarily, the cultural convention that I'm writing about. Some imaginary future.
2: The future you're writing about in this is the now, really. In fact, now that it's been out for a little bit, it's uh, 2006, I think, is your date on the on the on the the time period. And the virtual reality that you use, of course, is mixed. Rick, you just mentioned locative art, but William, would you be willing to uh, introduce what that is?
1: Well, it's actually what I'm describing in the book was I saw described. A decade or more ago, as as blended reality, BR, as a as opposed to to VR, and in blended reality, there's there's a a, a GPS factor involved that keeps your virtual objects aligned with the grid, so they're they're always in one place or possibly they're they're moving they're moving around but they're they're moving around in relationship to the to physical reality
2: So in Neuromancer, for example the people plug in and they completely <coughs> lose touch with this reality and are in a different space almost almost 100% and in this this book that you're talking about now with locative art you put on a visor that's actually semi-transparent and you're in a world that you're both mixed with the current reality that we're all aware of and a computer generated one on the same t-
1: at the same yeah. time yeah but i was also doing a kind of uh retro future nostalgic nod to that that uh goggles and gloves version of vr which has you know thoroughly joined the flying car as one, one of those one of those technologies we're never get we're never going to get it, what but, happened but we should well we were well, promised as kids <laughs> yeah but w- what turned out what turned out to override that is if the if the uh content of the the medium is sufficiently engrossing you don't need any you don't need any helmet yeah i don't people playing playing those those massively multiplayer online games don't need any goggles they're like in in the game and the old model of the old model of vr was the product of a day in which cyberspace had not yet turned itself inside out and and colonized the entire physical well, what world do you mean by that?
2: are we living in cyberspace now
1: i think we're we are i think i literally think we are and i don't i don't think we're really aware of it
2: yet well right before we started the show i went ahead and th- opened up my portable device and Twittered basically telling a whole bunch of people that subscribe to me that I'm speaking with you live now, on KOSP, and realize that of course that that's that's my connection to the virtual space, and I have it on me all the time. So is that kind of what you're talking about?
1: Well, yeah, that, and if we could, if we had a if we had a pair of magic goggles that allowed us to to see. PACKETS OF INFORMATION TRAVELING <clears throat> BETWEEN DEVICES. CAN YOU IMAGINE WHAT A STREET IN NEW YORK OR PARIS WOULD LOOK LIKE? WOULD JUST BE COMPLETELY, COMPLETELY BUSY AND CLUTTERED WITH THE WIRELESS INFORMATION yeah. that's, THAT'S being ex- BEING EXCHANGED. CYBERSPACE USED TO BE SOMETHING THAT YOU'D HAVE TO SIT DOWN AT A BIG MACHINE TO ACCESS and what we what we have now is something very different we live physically we physically live in a cloud of dis- disinformation but it's invisible and our interface devices don't don't allow us to be overwhelmed um, by it yeah to be to be overwhelmed by it but <clears throat> when i started writing the other place cyberspace was the other place And it was exotic and romantic. But today, the other place is where you don't have Wi-Fi. The other place has become a lack of connectivity. And that's what we register as, whoa, that's
0: different. Right. You can want to talk to William Gibson. You can call us at 1-800-655-5877 or 476-2800. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel, joined by Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland. We've got William Gibson here. William, uh, one thing I noticed across, or actually, this is a question from my wife, uh, she noticed that you have a lot of female protagonists. You use female protagonists a lot in your work. Could you talk about why you choose
1: female protagonists? Well, you know, I find them better company over the, over the long haul uh, of writing a book. I can't imagine why I would want to write a book that had exclusively, exclusively male protagonists. It's, it's just never, never occurred to me. And historically, I think a, a relevant factor there is that when I started writing science fiction, I, I went out and read a bunch of contemporary science fiction. That would have been about 1979. And I was drastically underwhelmed BY WHAT WAS BEING WRITTEN, WITH THE EXCEPTION of, OF SOME RADICAL FEMINIST S.F. THAT WAS MOSTLY COMING OUT OF THE PACIFIC NORTHWEST. WHICH and, AUTHORS? OH, URSULA Le Guin, JOANNA RUSS, AND VONDA MCINTYRE come, COME TO MIND. AND THEY WERE THE ONLY PEOPLE AT THAT, at that POINT WHO I THOUGHT WERE DOING ANYTHING RADICAL with science fiction.
0: One of the things that that, um, I noticed about your your most recent work is this: you have this idea of vision of um, America as having a a cold civil war, and that's getting hotter lately. Could you talk about that concept, which I think is a really interesting uh, vision of our nation now? And indeed, it's kind of engulfing the globe.
1: I don't know. I'm not... I don't actually have... I don't have an expressed political philosophy much. And one of the reasons I I write fiction is to discover where I am at the moment. And this book is... This book is set in the year before it was published, or the year before it was first published, so it's actually set in the year in which I wrote it. It's kind of early in the year in which I wrote it and one thing if you if you follow if you follow the background very carefully through the book, you realize that most of these characters with the possible exception of of one or two don't know anything about the the uh information harvesting operations that that were were underway in the united states at the time this action is taking place i think mr big end knows because he's 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 going to get set up with a dark net and he's long since quit trusting Trusting right. the telephone. Now, a dark
3: net is something like the Internet, but not connected. Yeah. That's a really interesting uh, idea. I like that.
0: We have a question uh, from Phoning question. Uh, they're offline. They say, Timothy Leary, Neuromancer to Computer Gaming World. Funding fell through. Do you have any similar ventures in the future, either for the big screen or on the computer?
1: Mm, well... <coughs> Tell us about I, the
0: Timothy Leary thing.
1: That's it. That's fascinating. But I've so I never knew all of what I never knew all of what Tim was up to. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if anyone did and it was a, a long time ago, so I actually don't know. There is a a sort of there's a very old Neuromancer film deal that the clock is running out on so there's a, some remote chance that someone may be able to to get a, a studio deal to make a feature of Neuromancer before before the last possible day but it, it usually you know, happens that way Yeah but I'll believe it when I see it Are you because,
2: interested in working on a film like that or would you just let it go
1: I, given, you know, given the experience I've had with that sort of thing, I think I'd, I think I'd just let it, I'd just let Cross it go. Cross your fingers? and do Well, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even do that. I'd just, you know, pay no attention and go to, go to see it when it, when it comes out. And uh, chances are I, I wouldn't be that enthralled with it, but it yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't be my aesthetic responsibility.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's not your form
0: have have you written anything outside of a prose i mean have well, you
1: contempl- I, wrote, I wrote the the screenplay for the the feature film we shot as johnny Mnemonic, but it, it, that wasn't what you got to see when johnny Mnemonic was was released and I, and i wrote a couple of x files episodes mm-hmm. which are that which was you know the It's kind of the two extremes of my screenwriting experience with Johnny Mnemonic and the X Files. It's sort of the the bad and the good.
2: (laughs) Did you like the X Files experience?
1: Yeah, very much. And one of the things that's great about that is that, that the relative degree of freedom you have in terms of seeing what, you know, deciding what you want to write and seeing what you want to write realized on the screen was much, 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 much higher. (coughs) There's <coughs> something to do with the difference in the amount of money involved. X-Files was about a million dollars an episode wow. when I was doing that. And, you know, feature, feature films are, are a lot more. Mm-hmm.
2: I um, I know that you don't claim to be a futurist, though. People try to put that label on you all the time. I guess I'm to some degree a futurist. And when I'm reading the most recent book that's talking about the now and how computers are used to track things and how GPS is almost ubiquitous, it's really easy to put it in a small device... I kind of think about where the next step is, and I'm seeing a lot of parallels in some of the locative information that you're talking about as an art form and also for tracking part of the main plot line of the book. Um, And I'm seeing that the devices that are coming in people's hands have these features, and there's a few more steps necessary to do the kind of transparent overlay of more information. But I'm using it all the time for navigation systems, I understand that you and your publisher came in together in a car with a gps system that's locative art in some way or at least it's information that's coming from the net to some degree and helping you navigate the real world
1: yeah and every you know people are everybody lots of people are using that every day the first the first locative art project i ever heard of was i think in bloomsbury in london and you'd go to go to an office in bloomsbury and they would give You would ask for and be given a sort of tablet with some sort of audio device on it and some GPS features and you would go out walking through Bloomsbury and as you passed certain points you would hear you would hear something that an artist had put together for that particular point and they were like wildly wildly varied. One might be a game that someone had figured out you could play with the, the facade of an actual building. And another would be someone's like heartbroken confessional about about the last time they ever saw the woman, uh, one woman they truly loved on the doorstep of this very particular building and you're standing right there by by the doorstep. This
2: sounds like a piece by Warren Sack, who's a faculty member at UCSC, who's a I work with Warren, and it's very much a, you know where you are, you, the piece is, is called Street Stories, and you walk around with a portable device with GPS, and you can either record a story or you can walk through other stories. And it's very much that, that kind of where you are to find the content you get. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I, that sort of put the locative art idea on, on the map for me, and I was in, interested in using it in this book mainly as a sort of Symbolic representation of of this feeling I have that cyberspace has turned its, uh, turned itself inside out and colonized everything, and we haven't really we haven't really quite grasped that yet. I think there's been a big change over the last decade or the past 15 years, and we're still but we're still waiting for the next recognized change but there's, I think there's been a big change that we haven't really recognized because it it's been slow it's been gra- it's been gradual it's been gradual but
0: steady it's the boiling a frog phenomenon yeah We're, boiling
1: <laughs> boiling the cyber frog
0: uh we're taking your email questions, KUSP at KUSP.org, or your phone-in questions at 1-800-655-5877. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel. We're here with William Gibson and Lyle Troxel and Sean Cleveland of GeekSpeak. We do have a question from the Internet. This is from Andrew Hagman. He's a doctoral student in the Department of English at the University of California, Davis. And his question is, from the sky, the color of television tuned to a dead channel, an opening line we'll never forget, that opens Neuromancer to the annotated environments and locative art in Spook Country. Your writing consistently engages with intersections of technology and place or environment. Would you please remark on the trajectory of shifts in your configurations of this technology, environment, intersection, and the ways that it shaped your narratives from your early work to Spook Country?
1: Wow. Um,
2: that was a PhD candidate. It? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a thesis right there. Um, Well, my initial, <clears throat> my earliest inklings of cyberspace as an imaginary construct that I could that I could use in in the writing of science fiction probably had ev- everything to do with standing outside old school video arcades and watching kids play these enormous car-sized, plywood-sided video games that were the, fir- the first ones that were around. And what I, what I think I did was I read in their posture this intense desire to reach through the screen and directly manipulate that information. And just that their posture suggested to me that there was, in some sense, a reality behind the screen.
2: Some place they couldn't get to, but wanted to. Yeah, they,
1: there was this yearning to be. There was this yearning to be beyond the screen. About the same time, I started seeing I started seeing ads for the earliest home computers, and I realized that these these home computers would be on desks and tables in people's homes and that they had screens and that behind the screens was some version of the same space that these kids in the arcade were yearning to dive into for some reason i took it for granted that the spaces behind each of those each of those machines in individual homes and and apartments would be the same space at Hence posi-
2: the invention of the net.
1: Yeah, possibly I had heard about the net to some extent, which which did exist then, although there weren't that many people who were were privy to it. And that was the begin. So I began with a sort of info geographical metaphor. That had, you know, even someone trying to get on the get to the other side of a screen is is info geographical in a in in a micro sense, and I extended that out into an entire imaginary universe. And I suppose I've continued to do that because it's it's uh, it's con- it it's continued to work for me as some sort of description of reality. It works in a Works for me in a very naturalistic way.
2: The metaphor of the of a space with computers has been a pretty standard thing. Um, Maybe a sensitive answer, but we all call the desktop this thing that actually exists, and of course it's not. It's it's a f- you know a whole bunch of bits, but we do conceptualize it as a space. Um, and visually, we see it as a space, of course, on the screen. So it's kind of interesting that that the entire idea, I mean, I think that the stance that I wouldn't expect would be the idea that everybody's desktops connected, that you saw, even without really being aware that the net exists, a very enlightened way of thinking.
0: Talking with William Gibson, author of numerous science fiction novels, including Neuromancer, we're we're back and we're taking your calls at one 800 655 5877 KUSP at org. We have an offline uh, question for Mr. Gibson: Is there any role for ludites in your cyber world?
1: I suppose, I suppose there is. I'm I'm unable to. I can. Like yeah, microphone. I can give you an example.
3: <clears throat> World of Warcraft, you've got people who are just making armor and doing things for other people who are in the game. To buy, you then buy that and then use it. So that would be kind of like somebody, that's what they do. They go into the game, they actually build things. But they don't really adventure and do other things. But they seem to get happiness from that.
2: Yeah, that's kind of an alternative way of playing, if you will. But, you know,
3: when we were talking about how we are in a virtual reality, just in our own reality... I think I kind of get where you're coming from now. With with locative art or augmented reality, as we're calling it, if we could actually take these visors, put them in a sunglass sort of, you know, um, form factor, and we had enough 3D processing power to actually add virtual spaces in the real world, then we would really be in a uh, you know in in an environment that is partial reality, but is kind of cyberspace too. It could be anything you want.
2: You know, Sean and I had a big discussion about the technology the other day when we knew that we were going to be talking with William Gibson. We talked about well, what what are the features that are lacking right now with what technology we have, and uh, it's it's really close. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. I mean, we've got the um, the gyroscopic tools are really cheap now, which is very important for detecting head movement, and then you need a massive am- and then a the GPS coordinates to give you re- general location. They need to be a little better, though, GPS. Little, needs yeah, the GPS can be needs yeah. better, but it, it actually, accurate. I think it needs to be visually based, and this is a camera, kind of like the Wii remote, where the Wii actually is tracking based off of imagery. It's receiving. Imagery re- it's receiving is a ref- small reflectiveness of the screen, and LED on the, the Wii remote, but basically having a few tether points to trap the image to sync it, if you will, is a crucial part. And then a massive amount of low-power Processing.
3: Yeah, well, rendering high-definition 3D so that it looks real among the actual real environment um, in a way that as you walk around it, it's rendering mm-hmm. it in 3D so that you see perspective. Uh, that's the,
2: the tough part. That's and the it challenge. doesn't make you nauseous. Because that's a big part of it is if it's not locked on I think you wouldn't get
3: nauseous because you're not in a virtual world. You're still grounded. You're still seeing the real things around
2: the object. The earlier stages of these actually is pretty. And I think you even mentioned this in your book, William Gibson, that uh, when um, the first time your protagonist puts the headset on, she's instructed by the artist that there's some lag. You know, we accept that there's some lag. And I guess the question is, is it going to be at a state relatively soon where the lag won't be
0: important? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's important now. I think actually one of the things that that, – this is a process that you talk about called eversion, where cyberspace is inverted. We're more used to seeing computer graphics in some ways than we are to seeing reality (laughs) in front of our (laughs) eyes. I mean, you go to a movie and you see all these kind of graphics that are supposed to be hyper-real. To me, they still look like a computer game. Sure. Yeah. William, we have a question for you. How do we deal with present pollution, energy, and climate changes realities in an energy-intensive technology?
1: Boy, I wish I knew. I, I, I'd have a whole other. I'd have a whole other line of fiction. I, I would refer you to my colleague Bruce Sterling for that one, <laughs> or to. Uh, another you know, probably also to the more politically progressive but more traditionally hard science SF writers I, I'm sort of a you know, science fiction for me is is some kind of flag of convenience and and it always has been I'm as many science fiction writers I'm sure would happily tell you I'm not really doing the 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 real thing
2: right and and you've actually um created a whole subgenre of fiction I would say and so in that you're not hard fiction that's for sure but um do you do you read a lot of uh hard fiction or hard sci-fi like, real I don't even characters.
1: read a lot of I don't even read a lot of science fiction any, uh-huh. anymore. The only science fiction I want to read is science fiction that couldn't have been written ten years ago, and there's hardly any around. Uh-huh. I think science fiction may actually be over. Science fiction, as we knew it as a historical entity, in the twentieth century, may turn out to have been part of twentieth century modernism. Uh, my friend John Clute, the the science fiction historian and critic has been saying that for the past five or six years, that the world today, reality today can't support what we used to do. And my expression of that in pattern recognition is the the character who argues who argues that the present today is too unutterably brief to support the Wellesian arc of extrapolation. When H.G. Wells thought about the present, he probably thought it was a couple, of, at least a couple of years long mm-hmm. or a decade long. But for us, it's a news cycle or a fraction of a news cycle. The world will not hold still long enough to allow for classical acts of extrapolation. You literally can't do it today because you don't know where global warming for instance and that's only one factor. You don't know where that's going.
2: Right. I think it's interesting when I was reading your book that you you actually re- wrote in 2006 that so much of it is pretty valid still today. I mean you're talking about the iPod with the the white cables coming out of the ears. That's still going on. But it didn't have to be that way. It could have been that, you know, tomorrow Apple releases all black cables, and that's what everybody has, and pretty soon your piece is dated right there in that timeline. And that's kind of what you're talking about, that that the now is not very long.
1: Yeah, the now is not very long at all, and I'm all pained. It, I, it's it's really uh, a kind of skin-of-your-teeth operation to write speculative novels of the very recent past, yeah. which is is what this is, because... But with the iPods, for instance, the kind of things that come into play for me writing, writing in that time frame, a friend of mine said, you know, they, that's, not, that's not the way they would do it. They would do it with these, you know, four, $4.95 keychain digital cameras, and, and that would be that would do the trick. But I said, no, I don't. I want to be able to piggyback on all the money that Apple spent. On making the iPod iconic, mm-hmm. like I want, I want to get those iconics for free, and legally, and and the iPod is resonant in a way that uh, a made-in-China keychain camera can never be. Right. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I thought about that the entire time I was reading it. Like, why are these people using an iPod for data storage? There's a lot cheaper ways yeah. of doing it. In fact, there's there's examples in media-controlled environments like Cuba where people are taking uh, news stories, newspapers, on USB thumb drives and handing them around, and it's called yeah. know, sneaker net type stuff. And so why not use those? But you do cover that because there's a discussion about how the information is actually encrypted and yeah. in music, and that's a very clever way to, to put that iconography piece very important in, in it.
3: I was su- I was surprised that you kept tower Records in there
1: Tower Records was there w- when the action took place yeah that's the right, very that's what I end figured. of the very end of it but it, it was by the time the book was published it was gone, but I knew it was going to be gone when so yeah, yeah. you kind
2: of wanted to hold on to it for a second yeah,
1: but it was also from it was such a notable part of the mm, geography of that very small piece of of landscape that that I worked so thoroughly there, that uh, it was so sort of one of my and one of my favorite parts of it.
0: Yeah, we have a question from the internet, an email question: Japan and East Asia. How have your perceptions changed over the years since writing Neuromancer?
1: Now, so when I wrote Neuromancer, I hadn't been to Japan, and then Neuromancer became a sort of of instant success, the scandal in japan because i had a wonderful crazy japanese translator who did something uh, like terrifically transgressive with with his translation and the book got a lot more attention than it than it would have would have done otherwise so i got to i got to go to japan but i'm still like i still am like deeply in in with with Japan and Tokyo in particular, and I think that I've come to I've come to suspect that that's because the Japanese had have had the most hairy extreme experience of of techno shock. I, I think of any culture on uh, any culture on Earth. They bought the entire industrial revolution kit from the British and the Americans in the 1890s, turned it on and, like, literally blew their brains out. Thirty years later, they were this huge military industrial machine taking over, been on taking over their their part of the world. That didn't work out. They got nuked and, and put back together by some actually fairly enlightened American policy and came back at us selling us selling us cars and motorcycles and television sets. There's like no country on earth has a history anything anything like that so i'm I'm always like deeply fascinated by by their approach to technology. That was always what i that was always what attracted me. It wasn't because of their bubble economy. It wasn't because yeah. <clears throat> Time uh, Time Magazine said that that they were taking over the world in the 80s. It was because of what happened to them in the 1890s mm-hmm. and in the Second World War and then what they what they became.
2: You uh, you talk a bit about conspiracy in this book, but I understand that you're not a big conspirist kind of person. What what do you what do you think about the reality of potential small conspiracies? Like the one that's in, in the main arc of this book.
1: Well, you know, there are conspira The world is filled with with small conspiracies and and with some fairly large conspiracies too. Any any policeman knows that. But what we call conspiracy theory is something else. And my my rule of thumb for recognizing a conspiracy theory is any anything that anyone can explain to you over the course of two pints of beer that purports to explain a big hunk of history is probably a conspiracy theory and the appeal of conspiracy theories regardless what they're about and regardless of how dire they might seem, the appeal of them is that they're inherently comforting because they allow us to describe a world that is far less complex and random, hence less terrifying than the one we actually inhabit. (laughs) That's scary.
0: Support for Talk of the Bay is from Zachary's Restaurant. Zachary's Restaurant specializes in breakfast and lunch at 819 Pacific Avenue, serving Santa Cruz since 1985. Support for Talk of the Bay is also from American Chemistry Council. Recycling plastics gives them a second life and helps keep litter off California's beaches. Recycling plastics prevents waste, preserves resources, and protects the environment for future generations. Uh, Mr. Gibson, we have a question here from New Zealand, uh, sent through us from Cyberspace. To what extent do you see science fiction influencing the future?
1: Hmm, I don't actually see science fiction influencing the future much now. I think science fiction influenced... Science fiction was a a big part of our culture of the future in the previous century, but the previous century was a century in which we actually believed that we had a future. We took it for granted that we had a future, and in the twenty-first century, we can't actually take it for granted in the same way that we even have a future. So, well, why don't do you say
0: that? I mean, the threat of nuclear annihilation seems to have receded slightly. I mean, we at least we're not uh, doing drop drills.
1: Yeah, that one's you know that one's that one's gone away. But now we're we're trying to figure out how badly how badly we've damaged the planet's weather weather system. And that's actually a bigger I think that's a bigger problem. It's not going to go that's not something that's going to go away. And we have a lot of other things going on as well. If if I had gone into a publisher's office in nineteen eighty one, the year that I started writing neuromancer and I and proposed proposed writing a novel in which the unrecognized side, one of the unrecognized side effects of human technology for the past couple of hundred years was the the, uh, chronic destabilization of Earth's weather systems. They might have said, yeah, that's not a bad plot driver. You know, go and see what you can do about that. But I'd say, no, wait, in the same... In the same scenario there's this this sexually contagious disease that destroys the human immune system and is is globally epidemic and they go "Well, that's a bit the two it's a bit too much and i'd say and terrorists from the middle east have hijacked airplanes and flown them into the tallest buildings in new york and the United States, in response, has invaded the wrong country. And they'd call security. <laughs> but the world we live in is much much, more, is much, much more complicated than that. So we don't have, as I see it, we don't have the luxury of, of dreaming of a Star Trek future because, you know, we have too much how do we get there from here going on to make that realistically possible you can still do it i mean you can still do that kind of science fiction but it re- requires far too much wishful thinking at this point to convince to convince me now, the science fiction i want i'd like to see and it's not that i don't think it's a science fiction i'm ever going to write but some of the science fiction i'd like to see is is how step by step we could get that we could get there from here Mm -hmm. like how can we how can we clean up the mess that we're leaving our great great grandchildren and and in doing so i think causing them to they're going to look back at us with utter contempt at very best yeah
2: i I got a question about the book specifically um spook country tito the character um, seems to me to be a little superhuman, and at the same time, naive in, of the world. Do you feel that that's that? First off, can Tito, the person, actually exist? Do you think?
1: Mm, t- not, not to the extent that. Uh, not as easily as Milgram mm-hmm. could actually could actually exist. Tito's a little Tito's pushed, a little bit, but. One of the things with a, with a book like this is you perceive each character through each character's lens, you know, through each character's personality and, and each character's sense sense of of the world. And Tito, as a, a fully blown practitioner of Santeria, actually is having experientially. The experiences of that those gods talking to him mm-hmm. and helping him, whether that's actually happening in terms of the reality of the other characters, is is up to the reader. But Tito is convinced that it's Tito is convinced that it's going on.
2: Yeah, I I, I saw that as an internalization, but I'm a bit of a uh, atheist or or such, so I didn't see that as an actual god manifestation. But in any case, do you think his actions and stuff is that of a person, can a person really do the things he does? Or do you think you push that?
1: Oh the back text and things yeah. like that? Um yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean I've seen, you know, there's some amazing stuff on YouTube if you want, you know, start poking around the the parkour videos.
2: Right. Right. Of the people that run through cities and yeah. do amazing things. Yeah, yeah, but
1: when you when you when you start searching those, you start turning up you start turning up other other things, uh, obscure obscure bits of of martial arts. Yeah. I mean, he's not uh, yeah, I don't know. He's not, he's meant to be on I know what you mean about he's kind of superhuman, but he's meant to be I was trying to get it like right on the border yeah. like is this possible or is this is this is this not possible. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, we have here a question from the internet. The time frame of your recent work has seemed somehow to be closer to the present, and than some of your earlier so-called cyberspace work. This may be because changes in technology and society seem to be mo- moving forward more quickly than before. Have there been cases where you've what you've written seems like a scene where you've written what seems like a scene from a dysfunctional future, and later found out that it's something that's already happened, or is this something you think about or worry about when you write?
1: No, I can think of uh, I can think of one instance where I removed the description of a particular terrorist act from from the galleys of a novel I published about 14 years ago, because. I realized when I was going over the galleys that what, what I was proposing was so specific and so absolutely feasible and made so much sense in terms of, of large gesture from, you know, with minimal resources that I simply didn't want to suggest it to anyone. Because if of, that
2: were to happen, you'd feel guilty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And of
1: course, for that reason, I can't, I can't ever tell anyone what it was so it hasn't happened that's good but uh, yeah and it it no one's it, it hasn't apparently hasn't occurred to anyone to do it and maybe it's a i hope it's occurred to someone else to make sure that no one <laughs> uh, no one no one can easily no one can that can that easy, easily do it but generally generally what i do to you know induce the illusion of a realistic future is to to choose some environment that exists today on Earth, which I can then you know access and and research, and just shift it. So if I shift the 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 reality of a Brazilian shanty town to an orbital space station, I, you know, I I, love, I get great results yeah. <laughs> generally because I get all of this detail and it's all logic, logically human. Mm-hmm. I don't really have to. I don't really have to make it up. I just get it by, by shifting locale. I, there's there's remarkably little made, really like fully made up material in in my early my early novels it's for the most part it's all borrowing sometimes from the past sometimes from some other part of some other part of the present the the criminal underground of Neuromancer and the two subsequent books, for instance, is is based very, very closely on the the Victorian criminal underground in London, how it was how it was organized, and how there were almost there were literally guilds of pickpockets and and muggers.
0: Now, in our final moments, we have an email question, which is from Alan. He asks, "Did you start all tomorrow's parties with the final scene in mind?" Or imagine something beyond and your thoughts on the singularity. Well I, in two minutes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know what the final scene I actually you know I can't remember. I can't remember whether I had that that image of the naked girl stepping simultaneously out of every fax machine on the on the planet. But I was trying to work with work work with the idea of the singularity, and, and the idea of the singularity is that you can't write a science fiction novel beyond the point where it occurs, but subsequently, I've really questioned the extent to which I bought into the singularity. I think the first time I heard the phrase, the geek rapture, I had to radically rethink the whole thing. And I I now think it looks entirely too much like 13th century millennialism. It looks like a a very old dream indeed.
0: We've been speaking with William Gibson. His new novel is Spook Country. Uh, William, we've got about a minute left here. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Have you started a new novel?
1: Not really. I haven't really started it, but I'm on the paperback tour for the last one, and the paperback tour has become sort of like the starting gun for the next book. <laughs> Everybody's waiting in anticipation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you for joining
0: us, William Gibson, and we've had Sean Cleveland and Lyle Troxell. Thanks for joining us on Talk of the Bay. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having yes. us. Thank, William, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>